because everything in my life, people would say, oh, it wasn't supposed to happen. The restaurant industry is a white male dominated industry. I mean, let's call it what it is. Yeah. So, and I'm a black girl from Harlem. It was never supposed to be. You're, you're not going to open a restaurant. You're a black girl. You're not going to open a restaurant. You're from Harlem. You're, you know, because you're black, you're female and from Harlem. You're definitely not going to do this. Um, but I place faith over fear at all times. And that's what I'm doing in this situation. Today's guest called me an honorary Harlemite, and I feel crowned. I love my experience living in Harlem for 10 years now because it's full of life, great food, and most importantly, a loving community. Melba Wilson, owner of the famed Melba's Restaurant in Harlem, is today's guest, and her career, or should I say, her calling, as a restaurateur is nothing short of inspiring. 16 years ago, she opened Melba's, known for some of the most flavorful soul food in the city, after cutting her teeth at notable restaurants like Sylvia's and Rosa Mexicano's. With a legacy of serving up incredible dishes for any occasion and a personal desire to serve her community, she's built a business that's welcomed the masses. But how is Melba's weathering the storm of COVID-19? What keys have kept the doors of this establishment open while six of the other restaurants on the same block have had to close indefinitely? On this episode of Unbossed, Melba Wilson shares the importance of perseverance, having a plan for pivoting during a crisis, and putting faith over fear. I hope you all enjoy. Let's get into it. I'm so happy to talk to you today because I know uh, this is a very big day for you, and we're going to get into why. So let's get to it. <laughs> um, when I open up this podcast, I always like to ask everyone this one question, but tell me about your very, very first job. That first job you got a paycheck for. Well, the first job I got a paycheck for was when I was nine years old. I started out as a child model and I was modeling and working with Ophelia DeVore. And um, yeah, I did a fashion show for Miss DeVore. And that was my very first paycheck. And that wasn't at the time when you had <laughs> cards to go to the bank. I had a passbook. Oh, that was my very first paycheck. I'll never forget it. Wow. Uh, even now, when I look back on it, it was a liberating moment. Yeah. Why? Tell me why it was it liberating for you, especially at nine? Well, at nine, it was a liberating moment because it showed me that I could work and I can do something valuable and receive payment for it. So that meant everything to me. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And I'm going to assume that likely, you know, you got that first paycheck and you got that feeling of independence. Yeah. <laughs> you probably went with it, you know, and, and that kind of leads into who you are at this moment. Um, but can you kind of talk about young Melba? What were you like as a kid? What? Um, and I know you were born and raised Harlemite. I am um, definitely born, bred, and buttered yes. in the lovely <laughs> village of Harlem, um, which I'm very, very proud about. You know, Harlem made me, Harlem molded me, Harlem shaped me. But more importantly, Harlem taught me to be ready for the world. Um, but a young Melba growing up in Harlem, I heard the sounds, the beat, the rhythm, the soul in the community of Harlem. That's what I felt. You know, in Harlem, there are a ton of churches. Yeah. And when I grew up in the 60s, your next door neighbor was not just your next door neighbor. Your next door neighbor was your auntie, 
<laughs> it was your uncle, your grand, you know, they were extended family members. And what that meant is that meant when you did something good, they praised you to the hilltops. Yeah. But that also meant uh-huh. when you were naughty, they pop, pop that hand. <laughs> you know, you had to get it two times, once from mom and dad, and then the other time from your neighbors. Um, but it was very much a community. Yeah. It was, it was a community filled with love but it was also a community filled with discipline. And so I grew up um, in a very disciplined manner. I fell in love with food, oh wow, at a very early age. My grandparents were from South Carolina. Okay. And I spent a lot of time, uh, well, every summer was spent in South Carolina. You know, we'd go to school in June, we'd all get into the car, my mom and dad would drive us down to South Carolina. As much as much as I know Harlem plays such a major role into your identity, into Melba's, there's also, you know, there's that South Carolina, like you, you can feel other other places into the mix and the food. So I think like now I, I was going to ask, like, if you had any what other external influences you had, but that's good. Good to know. Yeah, South Carolina was played a very important part in my life because that's where my grandparents were. That's where I got to run outside and there was a lot of greenery. Um, that's where I got to play in clay dirt and uh, spend time with my cousins. But that's also where my love of food was formed. You know, every summer, my grandmother would go in her garden and pick greens and beans and potatoes. And um, I would watch my grandmother take these items from her garden, carefully clean them and, and cook them in her kitchen. Yeah. And it was a labor of love. She took so much pride in preparing a meal, three meals a day, actually, for her family. So when I think of farm to table, my grandmother and so many of our grandmothers. <laughs> We've been about that land. Right. So you already know it was farm to table way back then. Um, but I also understood the power, the power of food, because everything in our family was done over food. Every celebration, every major milestone, every funeral. We all celebrated over food. Yeah. When did you become interested in, I guess, working in the food industry? Um, Did you always know that you wanted to be an entrepreneur or a restaurant owner, or did that come later in life? Well, I always knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. In my early 20s, I started a company called Rent-A-Chauffeur. And what you would do is you would rent a chauffeur to drive your own car. I knew that there were a ton of Fortune 500 um, CEOs and, and presidents who had wonderful cars. And I felt that instead of them leaving their car, parked in their garage and taking a limousine at the time, yeah. this is way before Uber and Lyft, et cetera, yeah. uh, that it would be a very economical thing for them to do to hire a chauffeur to drive their car. Mm. So that was a company I started in my early 20s, um, made a, a really nice amount of change. Okay. So that's also pretty... I mean, amazing considering where we are right now and being in New York and I mean, Uber, Lyft, all of these rideshare companies are life, especially during a pandemic. No one wants to train, but um, it is really interesting that you had just the, just the kind of, um, not just the idea, but the audacity to do something that that's a large undertaking. And I think, um, I'm sure that had a lot of different challenges and licenses that you had to figure out. And what can you kind of just briefly get into just 
What were some of those challenges with your first company? Well, I was I was very fortunate. I did partner with a gentleman by the name of Marvin Kreiner okay. at the time, and uh, he financed the entire project. And he met me while I was working at uh, a company called Middleman Cadillac, mm-hmm. which was in Brooklyn. And um, I was I started their rental department and headed up their rental department. And Marvin used to rent cars from us all the time. And he said, "You're very sharp. You, you know, would you like to start? If you had, if you could start your own business, what kind of business would it be?" Yeah, and I said it would be a business called where people would rent chauffeurs to drive their cars. Yeah. And, um, a couple of months later, he approached me about financing the business, and we operated out of I think it was 100th Street, and it was a dry cleaning uh, company downstairs, 100 in Central Park West, and uh, we rented space from the dry cleaning company, and yeah. it was extremely successful, and I became very bored with it because yeah. I was dealing with people. I was only over the phone and, and talking to the drivers and the clients and um, decided to sell my shares in the company. Um, did you put end up putting that money toward this venture now or another something? What did you do with that? Well, I'd always been a saver. And again, with my parents being from the South, I always watched them. My mother used to get my father's paycheck and she would always take money and put it under her mattress. Yeah. And we called this just in case, just in case money. So it was just in case my mother wanted to buy us a new dress or buy herself a new dress or just in in case she got angry with my father and decided, (laughs) you know, I'm out. (laughs) You know, she wanted to. I get it. Just in case money. So because I, I grew up seeing my mom do that, I too. Um, used to put money under my mattress. It's something yeah. I do all of the time. Yeah. And um, one day I was on a flight and I heard the flight attendant say, in case of an emergency, put on your mask first. And I looked at my life. I'd been taking care of everybody else. Mm-hmm. And I was married, I had a son. And I said, I don't want to wake up one day and go, what about me? Yeah. What about me? I'd worked in several restaurants, Rosa Mexicanos, Sylvia's, Windows. Yeah. 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 Definitely. (laughs) Sylvia's Windows in the World, uh, El Petty's. And I said, um, let me take a chance on me. I'd been partners with Robert De Niro and Drew Nearport on a project that we worked on for two and a half years. Didn't come to fruition, but I did get my PhD in the restaurant business. Some of the best guys in the industry. And I said, let me count and see how much money I have saved. Started counting, counting and ended up having a little over three hundred thousand dollars wow and this was over the course of how long over forever you wow. know like when you're young and you emulate your parents you just do what they do and you don't think about it it becomes a reflex right yeah. and so I would always put 10 bucks five bucks 20 bucks whatever I had extra on payday I would just take it and put it under the mattress and um it scared me once I started counting there had to have been a moment where you were like okay maybe I should put this into a bank <laughs> and maybe get enough. I, I wasn't that smart. I understand. I do get that. I, but I mean, to be honest, that it ha- that was effective. Three hundred thousand. And how, if you don't mind me asking, how old were you um, when you accumulated that much money? Well, it was sixteen years ago that I realized how much. Two thousand and four is when I signed my lease from Melba's, and that's when I realized how much money I had, I had saved wow. up. Um, but it was it was a surprise. It was a shocker. 
I now bank it more reputable establishments. <laughs> I don't keep a dime under my mattress for anybody listening. <laughs> but you know, it's, it's it's like the innocence, right? Yeah. You know, if you see your mom and dad do something, you do tend to emulate them. And we are our we are our mother's daughters. Yeah. And just watching my mother do that forever for a myriad of reasons, I just always did it. So yeah. my son about for about three years, decided he would put silver into the five-gallon water bottle, water oh, jug. Yes. My parents do that. Yeah. Yeah. So anytime we broke a dollar and it was silver, no pennies, only silver, he would put it in the um, in the water bottle. So after about three years, he was going away to camp one day and we said, how much money do you have? And we thought it was like 700 bucks. I think he thought it was maybe 900 or something. It ended up being six, a little over $6,000. Wow. Okay. So I just say that we can save. And when we do thing, things instinctively and we're not counting, you have no clue as to how, how much we can save and we can yeah. accumulate. I think after you've accumulated maybe a large sum, then you become more intentional and it's like, okay, that works. But if you're not right. paying attention, it's yeah. just there in the background, you're not worried about it. Um, that's a that's an interesting piece of advice for sure. Yeah. So you opened 16 years ago. I've been um, a fan of your oxtails and chicken and waffles, and for a very long time. Um, <laughs> what made you say I'm gonna launch a you know start a restaurant business? Um, and also, like, what were just what kind of made you feel like you could do this? Because I know you did your research and I know you know those stats about restaurants. I come from a family where my dad had, um, he's had a couple businesses and he had a restaurant and it's a beautiful thing, but it is hard. It is one, and, it's, and it's also one of the industries that, um, you know, that our folks are likely to get into. So I think um, just kind of walk me through your thought process for that. So Marquita, you are 110% correct. Um, being a restaurateur is definitely one of the most difficult things. However, second to being a parent, it is the most rewarding thing I've, I've done as well. Um, there's something, I guess, in everybody's spirit that's in the food and beverage industry. There's a part of us that are caregivers by nature. Yeah. And we use food and beverage as that vehicle to take care of other people. Um, and that's why even now, you know, uh, we're feeding frontline workers every day. Since since May 17th, we've been every single day feeding, feeding frontline workers. Um, so it's the joy that we get out of taking care of each other. That's part of it. But another part of it was that, you know, 114th Street and 8th Avenue, where I'm at now, um, was one of the most notorious drug blocks in Harlem. I know, I heard, yeah. <laughs> totally, totally. So for me, it was important to be a part of the change that I seek you know, I could talk about it or I can be about it. And I chose to be about it. I chose to put my money where my mouth was and to show kids and people in my community that you have a choice. You know, you can, yeah, you can make a living like that or you can come into the restaurant. You can work as a busboy. You can work as a server. You can work as a cashier. You can work as a cook, a chef, a, a reservationist, a hostess, a manager, and even own your own business if that's mm -hmm. what we're looking for, but I wanted to provide an option and I wanted to employ people from my community. Yeah. I wanted to employ people that look like me. 
even just me, I'm not from Harlem. I've been here for 10 years. That's it. Um, but I'm really Harlemite. I'm, I love Harlem. It's my, <laughs> it's, it's like my favorite thing about, um, about being in New York and living here. And, um, it, but it's been amazing to witness how quickly things have changed. And, you know, it, it was on a steady pace for a long time. Mm-hmm. I think we all knew where it was going, but that rapid change in like what the last five years, maybe Damn. all these, I mean, I don't know. It just felt like you went outside one day and boom, there's, you know, all these kind of like white companies, mainstream companies, they're not hiring us. <laughs> like you go in and you kind of, it's not a warm atmosphere. It just doesn't feel like it's for us. And I think, um, we're the, trying to change the name of the community. Yeah. Oh God. Wait, what was it like? So, so hot. Yes. But it is, it's amazing to me what you've created because it is such a mainstay and it's, it's just such a representation of what so many of us who live in Harlem and even like the friends I've made here, they grew up here. They love Melba's. It's a place where you go and you feel like community um, and you feel, you feel seen, you know? So I think that's, that's a testament to clearly to your vision and what you wanted to accomplish. So let's talk about, I guess, March, 2020. When did you officially, uh, I know you never, I mean, I know you closed for a little bit, but when did, when did you close at the start of the pandemic? We got um, notice on, we got a call on that Sunday. Was that Sunday the 14th? I think it was the 14th, March 14th. Or the 15th. I can't remember the day. It was either the, it, but it was that Sunday. We got a call that we would have to close the next day. And this was that, a call from? Friends of mine that were close to uh, elected officials. Yes. Okay. So we kind of got the heads up before the heads came up. Wow. Um, but we got, we got a call that we would have to close all the restaurants. It would be mandated that we close on that Monday at eight o'clock. Yeah. So I scheduled a call in and some people came in person. Um, but that was the most difficult day I've had in 16 years of owning Melba's. Um, to tell my employees that they would have to be furloughed, which meant they they would have no way of supporting their income, no way of paying their bills, no way of feeding their families by for no on no fault of their own it was nothing they did nothing they said um that was by far the most difficult day I've had in this business um because what happens is when when you work with people for so many hours a day they do become your extended family absolutely you know they're not just an employee they're not just a number. Um, they are your extended family. We spend a lot of time with um, our our employees. I joke about Definitely. that with my producer, Tiff, and, um, and other members of the podcast team all the time. I'm like, I talk to y'all more than I talk to my mama and my daddy. And <laughs> like, y'all know way too much about me, but <laughs> there's something to that. And um, I think I was reading somewhere you have to furlough and let employees go. Um, yep. Around two dozen, two thirds. Yep, two thirds of my of my staff I had to let go. Um, I have 34 full time employees. Yeah, and to just tell them that you didn't do anything wrong, nothing you said, nothing you did. You're wonderful, but I have to furlough you because um, 
you know, the government has mandated us to close restaurants. Um, was really, really difficult. And not knowing for how long. Yeah. That was difficult. Like if I said, oh, okay, we're going to have to do this for one month. Here's what I can do to help supplement. We didn't know how mm-hmm. long. And we still don't know how mm-hmm. long this yeah. is going to last. Um, you know, I was hoping, I was, is it going to be two weeks? Is, is it going to be two months? And that I think is scary for people not to know how they're going to care, how they're going to feed their families, how they're going to feed themselves. Yeah. You know, we have one young lady who, have, who has a one and a half year old daughter and she's the sole provider for her daughter. How is she going to feed her child? And as a parent, you know, we will feed our children before we feed ourselves. Absolutely. Um, I, my employees asked us not to close down. Um, so we did not. So what we did was we kind of navigated. We're like, okay, we don't know what's coming. We're going to deal with it. Yeah. We're not going to let it take us out. And we're going to get through this. We're going to get through this together. So, I mean... The beginning of March, you know, all of us kind of heard about this this thing coming, but didn't really know what was going on, just kind of living our lives. Um, can you just tell me, how are you doing as a business before all of this, you know, in the beginning of March? How are you feeling between that time and the time you had to shut down? Like, what, um, was, what was your biggest thing that you were worried about? The biggest thing that I was worried about was um, my employees and our, our guests. Yeah. their safety and their health, you know, because if you don't have health, you don't have anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. there's no amount of money in the world that can pay for good health. Yeah. So my biggest concern was the health and safety of, of my staff, our guests, and of course my family members. I immediately noticed in March, just being a person who orders from Seamless <laughs> and, you know, I like to like order food and, I remember noticing one day, because I definitely was trying to support um, smaller business, Black-owned businesses, and also got tired of cooking. So I, you know, traveled to Seamless, and I saw Melba's on there one day, and I was like, oh. And then I remember kind of going on and just kind of seeing what you guys, what you were doing, and how quickly you changed and adapted. What what was the strategy behind that? And also... Um, for those out there um, who have heard that a lot of these platforms like Seamless and Grubhub, they can be a little challenging for small businesses. Can you kind of get into that a little bit? Definitely. Um, well, the you know, it was all about survival. It was how do I maintain my business? And so it was about being uh, proactive instead of reactive. It was about being creative. It was about having conversations with other restaurateurs um, to see what they were doing and to see how we could cross promote and piggyback off of one another. So um, um, the beauty is that so much, so many of us, unfortunately, had the same challenges. Um, but the beauty behind that was it gave us an opportunity to share and to see what it worked before for someone and it also gave us suggestions. Um, but for me, I had I already have a catering business that I've had 16 years as well. Right. So right. Yeah. We, yeah. And we cater for anything from 20 to our biggest client we do yearly is a is a client that has 10,000 guests at one event. So we're good with dealing with volume. Um, so 
having to shut down the restaurant meant that we went into our catering mode and that it was about volume. Mm-hmm. However, I didn't know how many people would walk through the door. Yeah. Catering, you know, it's a catering for 200. It's a catering for 50. It's a catering well, also, for 10,000. My question for you, like with that is, um, with so many events having to close down, that didn't also impact you? Oh, it definitely did. You yeah. have to remember, this happened in March. March is key time for catering. time. Events out the wazoo. Yeah. And so there were so many, I mean, our largest client that we do 10,000 for canceled. Yeah. It was a huge cancellation and so many uh, clients in between, between March and, and July, like that's our prime time. And then of course we pick up again, Thanksgiving yeah. to our uh, new year's. So uh, we lost, we lost quite a few in the six figures. We lost a ton of money. Um, monthly, yeah. For, uh, you know, for the caterings, but it's it's not focusing on what we lost. It's focusing on how do we regain. So one of the things we started doing was we started feeding frontline workers. Yeah. Some of it we donated, and others we did for a quarter of what we would normally charge. However, you know, it's it's sort of like that McDonald value meal where it's what a dollar, right? It's the dollar value meal. But when they buy so many of it. It's a smaller profit, but it adds up. And that's what we started doing. So as long as we were able to keep our staff employed, that was important to us. As many of our employees on payroll as we possibly could. And, you know, taking those smaller events, smaller in terms of profit margins, totally helped. So we would do sometimes 700 a day, 800 a day, sometimes 100 a day, but it added up. Yeah. So... I know you do a lot of other work. Um, please, I forgot the name of it, but um, you're part of a hospitality network in New York. Yes. Um, what's it called? It's the New York City Hospitality Alliance. Yes. So did you get any support from that, I guess, that network? Or were you more so someone who was advising other businesses? Well, I definitely got a lot of support from the New York City Hospitality Alliance. Um, it's, it's restaurants that have been around for years. It was founded by um, some of the top restaurateurs in, in the country and definitely in the city. The guys from Tao, you know, Lavo, Nobus. These are some of Rosa Mexicano. Those are some of the uh, founding members. But I'm also the president of the New York City Hospitality Alliance, which is the first time a female and a person of any color has been the president However, um, you know, it's great to have this network of people around you who've been doing this for such a long time and they own several restaurants yeah. so to tap into, ask questions and get answers, but also to be able to give advice because, you know, being from Harlem and being a brown girl, I know how to work things out. Yeah. <laughs> Within a 10 block radius from where I'm at, we have six businesses that have closed. Yeah, these are small business owners like myself, who a lot of them put their life savings, um, you know, everything that they had into these businesses. So to see them close, it's devastating to me because if I win and we don't win, then it's not a win. Yeah, we're still not. I mean, we're at maybe 30 percent capacity. You know, we're not at 100. We're not at 70 or 75, which is what it should be in the restaurant industry to, to make a profit. We're nowhere near that. Yeah. So um, 
we're staying afloat, but it's not a win. Okay. So what is what does the future look like for for Melba's Harlem? Well, luckily, I have a community around me that is extremely supportive. Um, we opened up yesterday, Open Streets, and just to sit outside and see the people come and give you a hug or give you a thumbs up or applaud you um, and saying how proud they are. I have a community that is invested in me and it's also a community that I invest in. So we're not going down. We're definitely not going down without a fight. So amen. Amen. Um, Everything that I know how to do, I'm going to do. That's what it's about. It's about surviving and, and happiness. Because I don't want to just survive and not be happy. So I'm never going to sacrifice my happiness. So Oof, you just said a, <laughs> you just said a word. Um, these are things I think about more with age. You know, you're not really thinking about a lot of these things when you're in your 20s. And then I'm in my 30s. And it's like, you know what? I'm not giving up my happiness <laughs> for anything. You right. know? But I think um, a lot of that also has to do with um, faith over fear. Yeah. And I have a lot of faith um, because everything in my life, people would say, oh, wasn't supposed to happen. The restaurant industry is a white male dominated industry. I mean, let's call it what it is. Yeah. So and I'm a black girl from Harlem. It was never supposed to be. You're, you're not going to open a restaurant. You're a black girl. You're not going to open a restaurant. You're from Harlem. You're you know, because you're black, you're female and from Harlem. You're definitely not going to do this. Um, but I place faith over fear at all times. And that's what I'm doing in this situation. And that's why we're winning. The name of this podcast is called Unbossed. And um, to me, you are my definition of what it means to be unbossed. But can you tell me what does the word unbossed mean to you? And also tell me about, you know, someone, a black woman in your life, or it could be somebody who's, you know, a fictional character who's, who meets that definition of a boss? Mm. I would say an, a, a person in my life would have to be Ophelia DeVore. Ophelia DeVore started a modeling school and and a modeling a charm school and a modeling agency when she was sixteen called Grace Del Marco. Yeah. Ophelia DeVore went to finishing school at the Vogue School of Modeling. She was a very fair-skinned woman who hailed from Carolina. And it wasn't until a brown-skinned girl walked in and they said, I'm sorry, we don't teach Blacks. That she realized that they never knew she was Black. It was at the ripe young age of 16 that Ms. DeVore set out to open her own school in the Ed Sullivan Theater building, 1697 Broadway. And she only taught Blacks. When you look at some of the women that have been through her school and her agency, the Grace Del Marco Modeling Agency, you're looking at Diane Carroll. Yeah, okay. Yeah. You're looking at Cecilia Cooper, who was the first Miss Cons, the first Miss Black Cons for the Cons Film Festival. You're looking at, uh, did I say Sue Simmons, Diane Carroll? You know, you're looking at some amazing, um, Audrey Smalls. You know, you're looking at some divas. um, And you're also looking at me, Melville. 
Yes. So, um, Mr. Vore taught me that anything I wanted to do, I could do. And she taught me that at an early age in my life. And that's what I needed. Yeah. So definitely unbossed. Ophelia DeVore. I love it. You know, and I, I, a long time ago, I studied fashion pretty heavily and I'd heard that name, but I didn't, I, I don't think I knew the full scope of everything that she, that she accomplished. So I love a history lesson. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. Yeah. Most of the models in, in Ebony and Jet in the 50s and 60s and 70s yeah. came from the Ophelia School of Modeling at Grace Del Marco. Yeah. Melba? Ms. Melba Wilson, um, thank you. So Melba, tell me, where can everyone learn more about all of the amazing work that you're doing as well as, you know, how to support the restaurant? And also, word on the street is you may have some things coming up later this year. Can you talk about that a little bit? Just a little bit. Break a one now, break a one now. I'm okay. That's the news, girl. That's how you found out. But it is so true. I'm opening up Melba's Muscles on 118th Street and Lenox Avenue. It's a seafood restaurant, very female forward. I have a female Somme, a female executive chef, and I'm also getting my muscles from a female fisherwoman. Super duper excited about it. Uh, but that's opening September 15th, 2020. I'm also opening up a 9,000 square foot location in Newark, New Jersey, which I'm very excited about. Um, as well as my food products will drop by the end of this year, November 2020. So it's a couple of things. Yeah, a couple of things. Couple okay. Of things. And they're going to be available in stores everywhere? Well, hopefully online, but we'll see about the stores. You can also find out about us on Twitter and Instagram at Melba's Harlem or www.melbuzzrestaurant. Dot com. Amazing. Thank you. I can't wait to support. I can't, I can't wait till this food drops. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your wisdom. And thank you, Marquita, for taking time out to spend time with me and to recognize me. Um, that's so, so important that we give each other a voice and that we recognize one another. So thank you. I've, I've, I've long been a fan and in love with Essence. So it's oh, been my pleasure to be featured. It's my pleasure to talk to you. So thank you. thank you. I could keep doing it. I may show up a little later. I may Uber over there. You know where to find me. You know where to find me. We'll be here. We'll put the lights on for you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, my sister. God bless. Be sure to listen download or subscribe to more episodes of Unbossed. You can find Unbossed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Apple listeners, please be sure to leave me a review and let me know what you think. Be kind, but be critical. That's okay too. Don't forget to hit me up on social at Marquita underscore Harris underscore. Be sure to use the hashtag Unbossed Podcast. I appreciate you. Thanks guys.